Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, guys. I am delighted to have you today as my guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Uh, Sam, you're a repeat guest. I think you've. I think this actually might be conversation number three. You're always good for some uh, intellectually stimulating conversation. I think you were part, probably part of the, you might've been part of the original 25. I don't know. Um, and you and I have, uh, yet to this day, uh, enjoyed a cup of coffee in person, but somehow or another, we've managed to allow, uh, podcasting and social media to develop a friendship. Um, I think we follow each other's families as they've grown up a couple of, you know, over the last couple of years on Facebook. So I feel like I've Spent my entire life with you, Sam. So I'm delighted to have you here. And then, David, you're a, a, a new voice and a, 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 a new contact. So I'm delighted to have you here as well. Um, I look forward to getting to know you. Uh, before we dive into our conversation, all of our guests know that we dive into a big idea, bold opinion. Um, and uh, we let that sort of let the conversation emerge from there. But before we do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself? Uh, Sam, we'll start with you. Thanks, Jason. It's nice to be back. Um, my name is Sam Butler, and I am the head of public fundraising at Starlight Children's Foundation and a founding member of the Chartered Institute of Fundraising's Supporter Interest Group. And David, tell us who you are. 
Uh, hi, Jason. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me into the fold. Uh, this is my first podcast, so we're delighted to be to be part of uh, such a, a, a great one as well. So I'm uh, David Amos Reeves. I work with Sam at Starlight as uh, Head of Business Intelligence and IT, uh, and I'm also the Chair of the Chartered Institute of Fundraising Supporter Experience Group. Um, and I'm particularly interested in leadership and the role that it plays in our world. You know what, Sam? We have had you here on the podcast a couple of times. Um, I'm familiar with Starlight and what you all do, but I don't know in our previous conversations if I've ever asked you, and since we've got both two of you on the show today, why don't you just, both of you, one of you, tell us about the organization a little bit before we dive into our uh, topic. So, um, yeah, Starlight was founded about 35 years ago. Um, it was traditionally seen as a as a wish charity in terms of granting seriously ill children wishes. And in the sort of post-pandemic world, we pivoted towards kind of providing play and distraction aids for children spending time in hospital and hospices across the UK and offering them and their families breaks through organised days and trips away. Um, so coupled with that, we've had a rebrand. We've grown in terms of team and expertise. We've got an exciting strategy and um, a perfect storm ahead of us in terms of the economic climate, the political climate. Um, I would say probably not felt as anxious about a sort of a, a financial year ahead of us as I as I did when the, the crash hit us in 2006, 2007. So that's Starlight. Um, David has been brought in to work with the organisation, um, but sort of picked up with me almost immediately just in terms of ensuring that we're basing a lot of our decisions on insight rather than gut instinct. <clears throat> And David, again, before we dive into our topic, you and Sam are also a member of, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the involvement that you all have together with the, um, and I don't want to put the word, I don't want to, I don't want to label it the wrong way. So tell us a little bit about Sure, that. sure. You're, yeah, so we are, uh, we're voluntary actually. So we're voluntary members of the Chartered Institute of, of Fundraising. That's our professional body in the UK for fundraising. Um, and I think they kind of stretch worldwide in, in many ways, but our focus is very much in the UK. And, and our group of of, um, of of the committee there's probably about fifteen of us. We're very much focused on all the things that make up um, delivering a great supporter experience. So, and it's and it's everything from influencing strategy and how people behave through to managing how your communications go out the door to um, talking about how you use data to personalise things for for supporters and really get the the you know deliver a great experience for for donors so that they. They stay with you and and um, continue to to deliver impact over over a number of years. So that's that's what we're about as a group. We're we're about giving back to the to the sector um, and and hopefully upskilling everybody in that in that field. Yeah, well, guys, I'm. Uh, here's a little backstory on the reason when, when Sam reached out and said, "Hey, we want to have a conversation with you," and I want to introduce you to one of my colleagues, David. Um, Sam, I think you introduced me to Nikki Bell. I've had her on here a couple of times. She's with Fundraising Everywhere. We had uh, Martha was on here, uh, I don't know, six, six, nine months ago with myself and another member of our colleague before the summer conference. Um, and uh, so you've, uh, and there might even be another individual or two in the mix. 
Um, I think Ken Burnett, I think you reached out to Ken Burnett at one point because we right, right before the pandemic, you said, Hey, Ken, why don't you, uh, why don't you talk to that guy in the U.S.? Um, and so, uh, I've been very grateful for some of the connections that you've made with our fundraising colleagues in the, uh, um, in the UK guys, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. Uh, we don't always know what it is. We don't know where it's going to go, but, um, we use it always. It, it has, it has yet to fail us. So what do you got for us today? Go on, Sam, you take this one. <laughs> Sam's a Sam's a regular. He knows how to put it out there. Well, I, I mean, I wanted to I wanted to talk about leadership from a from an incredibly kind of global pers- perspective in terms of thought leaders, organisations that influence the way that we fundraise, and the fact that we've sort of seen a sort of homogenised version of fundraising um, develop over the last sort of. 15, 20 years based on the industry that's been built up around serving the sector, specifically in the UK. But I know that, you know, in terms of trends, the UK is often looked at as a global kind of signifier of where the industry is heading and what, what people should be doing. I think my concern is that they continue to do the same things we did in the same way and make the same mistakes along the way, rather than understanding the insights we've all been able to gather through evaluating those programs um, with a wealth of data. You know, if we're, we're talking about 20, 25 years worth of data, particularly when it comes to acquisition. Um, and I guess that's why I joined the supporter experience group initially when it was a, a commission um, led by Ken Burnett. Um, and like everything in my life, I feel I learn best by working shoulder to shoulder with others who have a deeper understanding of how we can utilize data and insights. And that's very much how David and I have kind of developed our friendship over the last sort of three to four years. Yeah. Uh, and maybe David, I know you guys have talked a little bit about this. Maybe you can further qualify um uh what what we mean by this notion of homogenized because that can mean a number of things um especially in the context of fundraising and uh, you know it can mean a lot of things um and uh so t- tell us uh, unravel that a little bit more for our uh for our friend Sam sure i think um uh, you know it's not, homogenized is very much a a word that Sam used um but i think you know from a, a granular level, looking at the supporter experience, we, um, you know, we quite often as a charity, the charity sector will treat, um, uh, you know, a massive individuals as one kind of homogenous group and, and think yeah. that, you know, the same thing can apply to those, um, you, you know, you might find a, a quirk in the data and apply it across, across the whole lot, making a huge assumption about it. Um, I also think there's, um, similar kind of principles existed within, within leadership. You know, we think of a, a you know what a good business looks like um based on um the industrial revolution from 100 years ago it was all about mechanics and industry um and we structure our organizations in a, in a very homogenous way as you know these hi- hierarchical things and that and that principle shared across most charities and most organizations in in the charity sector um and you see very much the private sector trying to break away from that now with with quite innovative ways of doing it so i think there's there's a lot of 
places where kind of uh, the charity sector is homogenized and, and that that causes its challenges in the sense that we can't relate to people on a one-to-one level that we need to be able to relate to them uh, to deliver the impact that we need to be able to, to deliver. Um, and maybe even the same happens with our beneficiaries as well, um, you know, where, where we assume the same challenges that, that exist within our beneficiaries um, and we try and treat them with one simple solution and it might not always be as easy as that. Yeah, I think I'm reminded of, you know, Sam, I'm sort of, I'm trying to recall exactly what the theme was at the, for the first, the earliest conversation that you and I had. But when we think about homogenous, any sort of, anytime you see a, a homogenized sort of system, you see a very robust system, but you also see extraordinary levels of efficiency. And I just sort of wonder if that's what you know, I've been wrestling with as I've been re- working on a particular project the last couple of years, I've been wrestling with this question of efficiency. Uh, you and I may have even talked about this. Um, you know, we've sort of let, and, and David, you're referencing the industrial revolution, you know, the industrial revolution. I mean, that's when efficiency sort of became the cardinal virtue that we, even to this day, we don't know how to even contemplate the idea that efficiency could be a bad word. But the more homogenized your system is, the more efficient it tends to be. And is, is that a trade-off, though, Jason, between, yes. you, know, you know, increase your efficiency, reduce your effectiveness in some ways? And, you know, that's an interesting kind of avenue to well, explore, I reckon. Well, and and I don't want to hijack your conversations, but I'm just sort of giving, I want you guys to sort of know where I'm at in terms of my own reading and my own research as it relates to the topic that we're having. But, you know, I've been researching what are called robust yet fragile systems. And I think about the fragility, you know, the, 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 the challenges that we keep running into in our sector and in our pr- professional community, just within the context of fundraising. And I think, you know, every couple of years, shoot, every, every 12 to 18 months, we're being sort of some other, some additional type of you know fragile sort of characteristic that could perhaps just sort of push us over the edge seems to be exposed, um, and 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 some of this dates back to you know the stuff that played out for you all in 2015, um, the donor dominance conversation that played out I think in 2018 2019. Then the everything that played out around the pandemic and and with the George Floyd murder here in the U.S. The, that sort of stirred up a number a number of conversations. Um, I mean, we're talking about some pretty, uh, but homogenization is at the core of a lot of those conversations. Am I right? Yes, I think you are. Um, rather than us both sat here nodding on a podcast, um, I think that the the main thing for me is that the the technology that we have access to um, and the skills that we require in terms of staff and resources in managing that technology and learning from it is finite in our sector. I don't think we have a wealth of it. I think a lot of people have you know, attempted to move to a more kind of digital fundraising program, especially in public fundraising, which is where I sit. But I think you've seen some success across, um, you know, sort of virtual gala balls, that sort of that special event kind of area over the past. I think the biggest problem is, is that we still operate in quite a transactional way when we're coming to kind of acquisition and huge levels of it. And I don't think that we take a 
an approach where we're wanting to learn more about those individuals that are supporting us, or as David touched on, potentially using our services as well. Um, I know that you know that I'm a I'm a big Springsteen fan, but I think he is a great example of somebody that's had an ongoing conversation with his audience over a very long period of time, and he almost kind of acts as somebody who's serving at the behest of the imagination of his audience. And I don't think that we do that as fundraisers. I think we try and force people into a particular product or into a particular kind of method or pipeline of giving without a true understanding of their motivation to give. And, you know, part of the part of the work that I'm, I'm undertaking with David is to kind of resegment and re-understand who is in our database and what their motivation has been in terms of engaging with us over the past. And when we're going out to a new audience, again, understanding what it is about us that's motivated them to give. And I think part of the the change in charities over the last maybe sort of 10 years is all around the kind of political angle that a lot of charities have seen, I think, dwindle. I think you see much more um, activism from small sort of community groups rather than um, people being able to align their set of values with a real sense of understanding the values of that organization they're joining and supporting. And I think that's a shame. I think it's disempowering for organizations that should be lobbying the government and standing up for their particular area of, of rights. Um, and, you know, I'm excited in terms of where I am in my career and the organization that I work for, the culture that we have, the opportunities that that's providing to us in a, in a, in a world that feels quite bereft of opportunities at the moment for fundraisers. Um, but I think a lot of it is about leadership. And I think that's where the conversation should probably shift over to David to kind of give his thoughts on how that is impacting on the supporter experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I actually want to go back slightly and, and I'll come back to leadership. And this concept of robust and, you know, as a sector, we've gone through many of those challenges Jason that you that you mentioned earlier and have come out you know still clean the other side uh, relatively clean the other side which is really you know it's a really great place to be and it's made me think you know we we've been the fastest growing sector in the UK for for the last decade as far as I can tell um, and and it's despite all of these things that we're not doing um, in in my view particularly well you know this this um, connection to cause and and um, as Sam sort of alluded to, actually being brave about our, our values and our and what we're here to do, because um, there are a lot of charities, particularly the bigger ones, that are playing it a bit safer um, than they perhaps might have done, you know, a decade or two decades ago. Um, and I think, you know, when you think about the political and social environment at the moment, that actually in some ways helps that robustness because there's more awareness in society that, um, you know, politics aren't perhaps as being... Uh, you know, the parliament, the government perhaps aren't as being as helpful as they could be to, you know, the the, the beneficiaries that we're trying to support. But my, my feeling is that um, that 
allows space for complacency that allows you know the the leadership within the charity sector to go actually let's blame government let's blame this let's blame that um we need your help because the financial situation the economy is is screwing us over and, and we need your help actually there's a bit about um you know is it more about those leaders being um self-aware being so connected to their values so connected to their impact um and working in partnership with their with their donors and their beneficiaries at a more meaningful level that actually allows um that robustness that sustainability to be so much stronger than it than it currently is and actually you know if we were doing this 10 years ago would we have ridden through um covid and you know the financial crash um and and the challenges around the olive cook um you know back in 2015 yes. around kind of the relationship with um with donors you know would we have ridden through that much cleaner and much easier and therefore having much less pressure from the press around everything that we do you know we're we're constantly being speculated about we're constantly being under the microscope um so there's a thing for me about you know the role that that leadership in the sector plays here and if we took a less you know transactional or less industrious um view over what we do as an organization uh, you know collectively um would that give us a you know a, a much more stable platform for us to be able to make better impacts or more meaningful impacts in society you know david uh, i've got a i've got a presentation coming up where i'm talking about sort of these five themes so this is this is broadcast this conversation is probably broadcasting it somewhere around number 350 or something it's been a lot of conversations as we said sam's been a part of them and and in light of everything you just said david i'm interested in your thoughts part of, on on one of these themes because this is some this is perhaps and this is using one of the words that you just used sam but part of what i'm i think i'm picking up on when i sort of try to discern sort of in between the lines of all these conversations is an evolution of the fundraising's job description towards something that looks more like a what I'm calling a persuasive advocate uh, activist a persuasive activist and I don't know how to do that at scale and I don't know how to do that sort of through the lens of say mass marketing and everything that we talk you know with direct response and how do we do that on you know these you know on these grand systems that can do things when we think of activism we think of it more boots on the ground and in the streets and that kind of stuff but david in light of what you all sort of the guy what you guys came here to talk about this morning what's your response to that that the job of the fundraiser could be evolving that we're sort of this next generation of fundraisers are sort of rising up in a myriad of context working for any number of organizations but is that what we're talking about that we're going to be you know, persuasive activists yeah, trying to I think, figure out how to persuade rather than being sort of sort of highly overly, overly, I would say overly responsive to the preferences of our donors. We're going to try to persuade them to go in the direction, you know, in some brave and bold sort of directions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, you think of the word fundraising um, and, it, and it comes with some uh, preconceptions. It comes with, you know, uh, people expecting there to be a, a, a transaction there or some sort of money being given over to somebody. Um, and sometimes that comes with no exchange of value and sometimes you do. Uh, I think what I see already in, in the UK charity sector in particular is um, lots of organisations are dropping the word fundraiser and they're using engagement or experience or 
Um, you know, you, you see much more um, kind of relationship-based um, words in there. Um, and I think, I think you're right. I think moving towards kind of um, much more bolder, more interesting job titles might actually change uh, the perspective of, of, of the roles in the sector. Activism, you know, persuasive activism may be too strong a word for some for some organisations. I don't know, um, but that, I, I, but like that doesn't... I like it. But I'm not uh, I'm not on anybody's payrolls. So. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, but but I think you know I think it's all about the perception of the people on the on the you know the receiving end of that of that role of that job title. Right. Um, you know, we all have a job here to to persuade people in society to make a difference. Um, to you know a problem that we have um so it, you know that's an element of it do we need to be so bold about it you know does somebody want to be persuaded i don't think anyone really wants to be persuaded if you ask somebody if they were being persuaded they probably wouldn't know they were yeah um so you know it's it's a strong bold job title i you know yeah. i think it's the direction we're going in but um yeah we definitely need to move away from this uh preconception that we have around fundraising i think so, so David, I, I've studied, and, and Sam can appreciate this because I, 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 I like to applaud my pat myself on the back periodically as being one of the first Americans who tried to unravel the Olive Cook tragedy uh, and sort of bring it to light for a lot of us Americans. And and through the lens of that, David and Sam, you can certainly comment on this as well. But I'm interested. You know, one of my critiques of that whole sort of one of the ways I think we are missing the point, And if I'm thinking about the fundraiser who would have been this persuasive activist, I'm thinking of that fundraiser who would have figured out how to land in in Olive's living room and persuade her not to give to the other. You know, there were 99 charities on her you know, dining room table. And who was going to be that brave fundraiser who was going to sit in her living room and persuade her not to give to the other 98, right? I mean, that, that, in, that in some ways, I think, was some of the flaw in that that sort of came to head and was sort of made aware to all of us is there was just too many damn charities on her dining room table. And had somebody persuaded her, look, stop giving to 99 charities and just give to a, you know, a half a dozen of them, it will make for a much more meaningful experience for you. And you'll make a, you know, even with your, you know, even with your, you know, you know, small contributions, it will have much more, you know, it'll go further. Does that make sense, David? It, it does. I, I would disagree. I don't, I don't think it's on us to, um, you know, decide who and how many charities someone should give to. Um, mm -hmm. They say the average at the moment is somewhere between three and five and it's yeah. dropped uh, yeah. per person. But, um, you know, if, if someone wants to give to 100 charities, that's up to them, I think. But, but, but we have a responsibility of understanding what our impact on that person's life is. So, you know, if we are, uh, as an organization, sending hundreds of communications out per year, yeah. And ignoring the fact that those communications are not being responded to, not engaged with, perhaps not even wanted, um, you know that that that's the kind of dialogue we need to be having with our supporters. Is yes, let's let's spark up this relationship where you you provide us with funding, we go and make an impact on your behalf, and we share that impact with you. But let's have a conversation about how you want that to work. So you know, if you only want one communication a year, what does that look like? How what's the thing that's going to give you? the most value in that relationship as a supporter. Um, and See, and would, if as part of that, David, you know, if, if, 
See, David, I would bake what I think is baked into your argument, though, that idea that 99 charities belong on anybody's dining room table. I think low expectations are baked into that. And so how do we how do we persuade more donors to give to fewer organizations and have high and, and both sides of the relationship have higher expectations. If Olive had had higher expectations of the people she was supporting and the people she was supporting had higher expectations of the levels of support, we might have remedied, remedied that without having to make a judgment on how many charities are on her table. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's got to be an, um... It's got to be within someone's understanding of impact. You know, I, I could give a pound to 99 charities and I could, it's a bit like spread betting, you know, I could I could spread my, my 99 pounds across lots of charities yes. um, and, and have a, a tiny impact individually on those charities. I could give 99 pounds to Starlight and potentially fund a box that, that, that goes out to a child and changes their day, you know, and, and, um, you know, what, what do I want as a donor? I want to know that my money is making the most difference. Um, and if those charities aren't communicating that effectively and they're not saying that my pound is making a difference, then I, then it's up to me to change where my donation goes or how I choose it, to invest it, that money. Right. And, and you're, 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 you're sort of deconstructing what part of my argument is. Is it part of Starlight's obligation and responsibility to communicate that? Is, is that Sam's job? To find those donors who are giving one pound and 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 help them make sense of the fact that if they give ninety nine, it'll it'll benefit both sides of the relationship in far more meaningful and significant ways. I, I think you know it's a simplistic view. Yes, I think that would be the ideal situation. <laughs> However, the reality is, if you go to somebody with an uplift ask from you know one pound to ninety nine pounds, the chances are they're not going to give you the pound. So um, it, it's, mm-hmm. it is about that dialogue. It is about understanding the context of every individual. Some people might prefer to give a pound to lots of charities. Right. And actually, if the whole of society gave a pound to 99 charities, the net effect is still the same. Um, you know, every charity will get the billions that they need to be able to do. You know, every charity sector will get the billions they need to be able to do their work. It's just coming from 99 places, you know, 99 individual donations rather than one person giving 99 pounds. And Sam, 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 I think you've picked up on this. We've got to get you in here because you've been listening quietly for a few minutes as we've, me and David have gotten warmed up. Sam, you've heard me talking about, as others have, that this difference between sort of moving from a, cons- a donor as consumer to a donor as citizen. And what I hear, when I hear David describing a donor who has every right to give to 99 charities, I'm hearing a donor who's behaving like a consumer. And when I hear a donor who can be persuaded to give to that one charity where he or she is having a far more meaningful experience and making a far greater impact, I'm I'm hearing a donor who is maturing from a consumer to that of a citizen. Does that make sense, Sam? Yeah, it does. I think that there's a fundamental issue, and I've said this before on on a podcast in terms of the level of duplication that exists within our own sector. You know, we're we're talking about there being 160 odd thousand registered charities in the UK. Yeah. Um, I'm taking this back to the, the conversation around leadership. I think that there needs to be a kind of a public review audit of the sector. Um, I think that people's motivations to give are so complex. And, you know, 
we try and simplify them in order for them to work for us through the channels and means we have to fundraise. Yeah. But I also think that, you know, the, the regulators and the policymakers around the sector need to take a step back and look at, one, the monopolization of the sector, um, particularly through partnering with bigger agencies that do a lot of third-party fundraising on their behalf and the access that gives them above and beyond most other organizations with a charitable cause. Um, I think that the duplication of particular types of causes or themes, there needs to be a much stronger sense of trying to encourage organizations to merge, to kind of reduce that level of duplication that we see in the UK and giving donors really firm kind of decisions on what they might deem a kind of a local cause or a local activist group that they want to support and get behind and then sort of the national bodies or the international bodies that they want to to get behind as well. Um, I think when you look at the kind of infrastructure of some of the organisations that sit in the top 200, 300 charities in the UK, their overheads are absolutely huge in terms of their running costs and i think where you see real success in terms of something like the 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 rollout of the vaccination program in the uk you saw a huge amount of those very well established voluntary organizations coming together to deliver something that really worked i'd like to see more of that i'd like to see more of that happen just under normal circumstances so that we are having the biggest impact we possibly can as a sector rather than having this sense of self-preservation setting in at board, trustee, senior management level, which is all about how do we continue to replicate what we've been doing for the last hundred or so years, Mm -hmm. as well as all these other organizations that are almost doing the same thing as us. (laughs) Can you guys clarify as we sort of take a turn in that we're, we're about a half hour in and we've got a good 20 minutes yet to go. Can you clarify, when you use the word leadership, sometimes in the sector and in these conversations with fundraisers, that sounds very generic and sort of broad. Who who are the leaders we're talking about? Because, I mean, here we are three fundraisers who generally are typically, you know, we're we're not at the top of the org chart necessarily. We're not sitting on the boards of these organizations. Who are the leaders we're talking about that, that when you say leadership, who are we talking about? I would say kind of established bodies. Um, you know, the Chartered Institute of Fundraising, of which David and I are members and, and volunteer for. And, you know, in particular, I have questioned that in terms of the last sort of two, three years of my of my membership with them. Um, I'm a firm believer on trying to make that change by working in partnership with people. And yeah. I completely respect that there's lots of people who don't see change happening through that route, that they want to act against it um, and that they're more militant in the way that they display that and question that leadership body. We've got the Charity Commission. Um, We have a a government member of parliament who, um, I think it's the Minister for Culture and Sport, who represents charities at at government level. I would say there's a huge, you know, there's probably a huge number of political individuals and professionals that sit on charity boards. Um, You know, you only need to look at the list of knights of of the realm and lords who sit on sort of charity bodies and boards um i think we just need to be really um 
the pandemic offered a transformational moment, I think, from a very practical level of fundraising. I think there needs to be a transformational movement um, kicked off around the governance. Um, and I think that's, you know, charities are struggling. Part of the reason that we're struggling is that I think some members of the public question our relevance. I think when you see movements like Black Lives Matter start to spring up, you know, the, the grassroots level um, activists around sort of environmental change and, and, and the, the sort of the movements we've seen spring up, particularly over the last sort of five, six years, um, that are, you know, they're disruptors. And I think that charities need to kind of stand back a little bit and start thinking, well, how do we fit into this? What's that new environment about? How can we structure ourselves to support those that need our help and the planet? You know, I think in terms of the biggest the biggest problem we face as a as a as a global society is is the environment you know and i think bodies like cop that are currently meeting the sort of level of cynicism that is aimed at that in terms of individuals with vested interests in in maintaining the status quo or ensuring that their finger is firmly placed in the pie that becomes the next way in which we generate our energy and and protect the environment i think there needs to be less self interest um, involved in 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 that entire structure and system. David, I'm interested in your reflection on what Sam just said as it relates. So, I would be of the opinion that um, thinking about what Sam just said, you know, when I think of organizations like Black Lives Matter, I've also been following pretty closely Extinction Extinction Rebellion. I've been reading a book about sort of what's been playing out in the UK with that organization for the last couple of years. Um, that predates the the pandemic. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if some of these organizations that are sort of rising up, I don't know if they give a damn how contemporary fundraising does what we do. I don't think they take us very seriously. Does that make sense? I don't think the group at Extinction Rebellion would look at the three guys like us and look at the way that we sort of toe the status quo and, and go to go to conferences, you know, and, and basically whatever is done in the, you know, whatever is peddled in the in the trade show hall, um, we're all going to basically do. I, I don't think these people take us seriously enough. And and perhaps that requires a certain degree of self-reflection on our part. We need to sort of turn the mirror around and look at ourselves and ask ourselves some harder questions. Am I right? Completely agree. I think, you know, you, you look at Extinction Rebellion, they're so driven by purpose. Um, it's purpose that that determines how they go about doing what they do. And, you know, they don't have to think about fitting into these hierarchical structures and these, you know, beliefs around leadership and, uh, and mm -hmm. et cetera. And I think, you know, thinking back to what Sam, Sam was saying about, you know, leadership in the sector, about our governing bodies and, uh, and our trustee boards, when you look at them, they're, they're the same. You know, they, they're made up the same. They're people who have worked in industry for 30, 40, 50 years and have carried those beliefs into uh, an entirely new fundraising concept, context. Like the, it's incredible. Like society couldn't be much different today than it was five years ago. Never mind 30, 40, 50 years ago when these people were, were building their beliefs around the world. And so, um, you know, organizations like Extinction Rebellion, um, 
people who are agitators and change makers within the sector that that um, might not have a director title or a trustee title or a CEO title. You know, they are they are leaders too. You know, they're people that that should be striving for change and should be challenging the sector to to be better and and also challenging those leaders at the top to go. Actually, it's time. You know, I've been here for twenty years. Things have changed. It's about time I stepped aside because some something else needs to needs to happen. And I think we have we as well leaders, anyone who is in a leadership role, one of the probably best talents and skills that they could ever have is to recognise when it's time to step aside. And quite often you don't see that. Um, and and you know I've been in charities where directors have been there for two decades in the same role. And I've had CEOs that have been in the same role for two decades and trustees that have been on the board for, you know, probably longer than I've been alive. And it just makes me think, you know, even me in my my role now, I've only been in this role for six months at Starlight, you know, in two years, I may be out of of fashion, you know, and and that's that's the reality of it. You know, I I have a responsibility to Starlight to be able to go, it's someone else's turn now. I'm better placed to doing something else somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping that's not going to be in two years. But, um, you know, it, it's that kind of self-awareness that I think leadership, including the governing bodies, need to have. Um, you know, they need to have that, that maturity of, of thought and thought leadership to go, we need something else. And all of the signs in the sector are there for that to happen. David, I don't know. And I think that gets that brings us back to the, you know, the donor experience conversation, et cetera, et cetera, is the idea because a lot of what I've been looking at since the pandemic, um, you know, we're seeing three trends that I suspect you're seeing in the United Kingdom, similar to certainly what we're seeing here in the US. You know, we're seeing three trends amongst donor behavior and that that I sort of consistently pull together. And that is giving circles, uh, direct giving and mutual aid. You know, these to me seem like a donor behavior where the donor is saying, I'm not satisfied with the way that the traditional charity is going about the work that they do. I'm not satisfied with the experience that they afford me. And just like Extinction Rebellion or Black Lives Matter might be saying, you know, the traditional way of being a charity and bringing about positive change, the donor is sort of on the other side of the, uh, the gift exchange and kind of saying the same thing. You follow me? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, gone are the days of the afternoon teas where you would, you know, <laughs> generate a couple of grand and hand over and do a nice little check presentation. Right, um, right, right. You know, society is in that way, and you think about. I hate, I hate the terminology around Gen Z and Gen X, but you know, the the the, the younger people of today have a very different way of engaging with the world and understanding the world, and have a very different way that they want to make have an impact. And that isn't necessarily by giving someone a tenor and going great. Um, you know, it's, it's, it might be about active involvement. It might be, you know, doing something like Extinction Rebellion and being on the front line, literally. Um, or it might be through crowdfunding or it might be through, um, you know, I, I, there's an awful lot of private organizations out there that are now starting to capitalize on the concept of charity and, and impact and, um, you know, such like within their model, within their business model. So, you know, are, are, are they stealing our charity consumers? If you want to call them that, you know, our, our, our donors, our supporters, because what they're able to do is buy the thing that they need to buy, um, and also do good for the environment or do, you know, do good for society in another way. And my mind goes straight to, uh, you know, the toilet roll company who gives a crap. You know, they are absolutely about that. They've got 
their customer experience nailed. They've got a great purpose. Um, they're incredibly relevant at the moment. Uh, and especially during COVID, where in the UK, for some reason, we panic bought toilet roll. I don't know whether that was a worldwide thing or not. Um, but, you know, they I, I imagine their sales shot through the roof because it was it was just something that people needed. Um, and you can feel good about consumerism as well at the same time. And with that combined with the cost of living crisis and your expendable income is shrinking, you know, are people actually thinking that it might be better investing in something that we're already buying that's doing something purposeful rather than doing that purchase and then doing something purposeful second to it? So there's lots, there's lots of things that are changing, I think, in, in the way that people give. See, it, it occurs to me as I'm listening to uh, one of the benefits of these conversations is you sort of, you, you maybe get these aha moments. But uh, I'm thinking that the homogenization that sort of happens within our sector and within the fundraising community is perhaps because it happens at the transaction level, right? It's a very homogenized sort of way of experience. The donor experience, the donor themselves sort of looks all the same. Everything sort of yeah. comes through the same sort of channels, you know. Even the process by which we make those decisions comes through the, it just everything's sort of the same. But I almost wonder if we were looking at for homogeneous, you know, if we were looking for similarities, I think about the response to the Ukraine. I think about a recent event that happened here in the US when the uh, University of Tennessee, when Tennessee beat Alabama. There was a, there was a moment of solidarity. It was what it was. There was this, the, the, they, they, the goalposts were taken down and there was a fundraising event that happened subsequently thereafter. And it very much reminded me of the same response that we saw right after the break, the breakout of the conflict in the Ukraine, where people were giving via Airbnb in order to put money into the Ukraine to help people in, in Ukraine. And it, what it was is it was just solidarity. It was the idea that we wanted to be in solidarity with, you know, it was as if I'm a, you know, for that particular day, I was a, you know, for me to contribute to the University of Tennessee was to say that I'm with you. But similarly, like with the, uh, you know, with the Ukrainians, we wanted to be able to say I'm a, you know, I'm I'm a citizen, if you will. Um, and I almost wonder if that's where we're looking for that sort of homogenization to occur, and, and we haven't done enough of that. Does that make sense? Maybe. There's two things in that for me. The 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 first one is that real clarity and purpose that I think some charities miss. Um, and, you know, if you think about the response to Ukraine, it was so clear mm -hmm. um, what their purpose was. And and it was quite simple for people to understand. And and there's also an end point to it. So mm -hmm. at, at some point, the war in Ukraine is going to be over. At some point, um, Ukraine's recover, uh, economy and society will recover. It may be decades into the future, but at some point it will get there and we'll see the end. Um, and I think charities get hung up on this idea that they need to exist forever and for all eternity. Actually, they need to exist until their purpose is met and they yeah. should do everything they can to meet that purpose. Yeah. And I think when a charity has that as their, uh, or, or even a cause, it doesn't have to be a charity, any kind of um, contribution society has that clarity, um, it makes it much easier for people to to engage with. The, the second thing then is, you know, the Airbnb example, you know, people have complete control there. You know, as a as a consumer of Airbnb, I'm going to buy this, you know, room, this this unit, this this property for a week, and it's going to be for this person, and I've paid my bit. Um, you know, what what a beautiful a, a the amount of control they've got, um, b the amount of connection they've got to the thing that they've purchased, 
and no doubt they'd, 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 they'd find a way of actually communicating with the people who have used that as well. So it's that whole connection to the cause and to the beneficiary, again, that I think that we as charities put ourselves in the middle of. You know, it becomes about us. You've given us money. This is what we've done with that money. And actually, it should be more about us being a mediator for something to happen. And it's actually about the donor having done that thing rather than about us as a charity. And I think that's the two things I pull out of those examples, I'd say. David, is that why that worked? Because I've been fascinated by that. And I had not thought about that. David, is that why that worked? Is because with the Airbnb, it actually gave us an address to send the money to. And we knew exactly where that money was going. Is that what yeah. it was? Yeah, why not? And, and you know, supporters have been fighting for control and visibility over their donations for decades. Um, what I mean, better how, way to do it? How, how proximate can you get, right? We've been talking about proximity. How closer to, you know, while I'm still on the ground here in York, Pennsylvania, by having an address, you know, no charity could give me address like an address like Airbnb could. I mean, Airbnb could show me a photograph of the living room. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it was so real. Um, I had never, I had never, David, I had never thought about that. It was completely authentic. Yeah. That, 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 the authenticity of it. And I think that's where, you know, that's we're we're currently launching our Christmas campaign. And for the first time, we're, we're using the voice of a child in terms of this, is, this is why children like me need the help that Starlight can provide. And I think, you know, David touches on that in what he's just said in terms of removing self as a charity. You're, you're a group of people that are trying to encourage one group of people to help another group of people or, or, or a, a cause. And I think we get too caught up in being that rather than encouraging that group of people to engage with that group of people. You are just the conduit. Mm-hmm. We actually had a conversation, Sam, um, about that very letter. You know, the, the, this this um, this this girl had had written this letter that that goes out to to our supporters, and there was a couple of bits in it that, from a brand perspective, weren't right. So there was a part where she she wrote the words ah, "aha," um, and and there was a bit where she drew an emoji using sort of uh, semicolons and a, and a and a parenthesis and. And there was a conversation. It was only a very short one. It was a conversation of, oh, we need to be consistent. We need to either do that or that or use proper emojis. And I went, no, because that's not what she wrote. That's not what she said. So we need to try and keep it as authentic as possible because otherwise it just becomes starlight rather than rather than the you know the actual person that's going to benefit. So you know, it, it's just a very simple example, but it's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, you guys have got me. We could probably just sit on that. You got me. You got me really thinking about the way, uh, because the other thing about the, the other fascinating thing about the Ukraine, the Airbnb sort of Ukraine, Ukraine response in terms of charitable giving is also that it's just purely an, an adaptive. It's a complex system that sort of just self adapts. It just sort of finds the way to sort of get there. And I think going back to David, I think it was your reference to the industrial revolution. You know, a lot of our fundraising practices are designed, built on these very linear machine-like systems that sort of assume a certain degree of efficiency and predictability and control that in a hyper-connected sort of complex world, 
when that generosity, when that generosity, when say the generosity from the from from individuals here in the U, you know in the, there in the UK and here in the US want to get to the Ukraine in a hyper connected world, it's just going to find the most you know, it's going to find the fastest way to do that. And that's what a complex system does. And I don't know that when we're at a conference, you know, when we're at a, you know, when we're walking around the, the, the exhibit hall at a conference, I don't know that there's really a lot of us that are sort of thinking like complex systems. I think we're thinking like we're running machines. I think we're all master mm-hmm. technicians at fundraising. And, and I don't know that that sort of fits the bill anymore. I, I love that analogy. Um, of finding the fastest route you know you think about a lightning strike it it, it goes to ground the quickest way possible and that, and that's exactly what would happen in an emergency the the solutions that you know ukraine needed they found them quickly and if we as organizations could provide that but are slow to respond because of our leadership our structure our um beliefs our processes um that's going to prevent us making the impact in society that we want to make um i think it's a really great point and, and that and David, that I, I again, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but that's exactly what happened at the university when when Tennessee beat, beat Alabama. There, there was this extraordinary sort of reaction to the idea that the that Tennessee wanted the you know wanted the goalpost paid for, and something was able to be organized in a matter of days. Um, it's it's kind of a fascinating thought. Guys, we lose our listeners. We lose our listeners at about 45 50 minutes in, which is exactly where we're at. Um before I and we and we could keep going and uh David, you know this cuz I've pointed this out a couple of times. You're more than welcome back as Sam has come back and had these thought-provoking conversations with me. But I wanted to sort of wrap up with the opportunity for you guys to sort of point out how people can reach out to you they're interested in starlight or perhaps just interested in reaching out to each of you individually and just continuing this conversation. How would you like them to do that? Uh, For me, you're more than welcome to try and find me on LinkedIn. Um, David Amos Reeves, it's a relatively unique name. Um, I should probably hope it's one of the few in the world since it's a new one for me. Um, Or you can actually email, email me uh, david.amosreeves at starlight.org.uk. And I'm more than happy to have conversations with, with your listeners. And for me, LinkedIn again, Samuel Butler um, and sam.butler at starlight.org.uk. And likewise, happy to continue the conversation. Sam and David, it's certainly been a pleasure. I'm delighted uh, that, uh, Sam, you made the introduction. You uh, you took the back seat there for a little while, so we appreciate that. You let me and David pass the ball back and forth. And uh, it's been a great conversation. You're certainly both always welcome back. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. 
We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.